It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, we finally got to the end of what is perhaps always feels to me like the longest month of the year, uh, January. So today is the last day of uh, January. But today is a day uh, because of an event that happened 40 years ago that I think it's an event that we must speak about. And it's an event I think that we must remember. I know if we were in Granard in County Longford, it's a, a topic that they just don't want to talk about. And I'm speaking, of course, about uh, Anne Love it, and it is 40 years ago. In some ways, it seems like so, so long ago, and in other ways, 40 years ago doesn't seem that long ago. It was on this day that Anne Lovett was a 15 year old schoolgirl who left her family home in her school uniform heading to school. But of course, as we now know, she didn't go to school. She headed to the local grotto uh, where she later on, on this day, 40 years ago, died of shock after exposure and severe blood loss after she delivered her stillborn baby alone on a cold, wet stone. And it was under the statue of the Virgin Mary in a grotto in uh, Granard. She was found uh, in blood-soaked clothes, cold, uh, lying in her school uniform beneath the statue, ironically of a woman who would have been persecuted for being unmarried and pregnant and uh, who had nowhere to go to give birth to um, her baby. But I suppose very much in what was seen as a sign of the times, it was, we don't know what time and went into labour or what time she delivered her little uh, baby son. But what we do know is it was three schoolboys were walking home from school in the afternoon. It was at about four o'clock and it was they came across. Uh, they first of all found her school bag and then when they looked around the grotto, they heard her moaning and realised, uh, well, I don't know if they realised what was going on, but they ran and got uh, help um, they they started shouting out for help and a man, a local man came. He saw and lying in covered in blood, lying on the ground, and could clearly see that this her little baby that she had wrapped up in her coat was lying uh, beside her. So he ran for help. But where did he go? He went to the parish priest. Now, in fairness to the parish priest, the parish priest said the girl needs a doctor, not a priest. But anyway, the priest did what priests did at the time and went and collected the items that he needed to perform the last rites. And then he went to Anne and her baby. Now, the boys continued to go look for help. They knocked on another person's door and uh, they uh, contacted a man and told him what was going on and in fairness it was that man who ran phoned for a doctor but that was at about quarter past four and he actually bought blankets uh, to 
the site uh, to the scene of where Anne uh, was. It took the ambulance almost an hour to come because the ambulance had to come from uh, Mullingar. So Anne was taken in a car along with her little dead baby, brought back to her home uh, where her father was and she didn't get to Mullingar Hospital until close to uh, six o'clock. She was described as being cold to the touch and still dressed in her soaking wet school uniform. So you could just imagine the type of weather. It was a dreary, cold, rainy January day. Mullingar Hospital made huge efforts to try to save her, but unfortunately she died a short time after arriving at uh, the hospital. But I just thought, you know, the first thing that uh, the uh, an adult who arrived on the scene looking for help was went to the priest, which is really, I suppose, just emphasise it was a sign of the times. I mean, we were talking about 1984 when Catholic doctrine still very much influenced public policy in this country, bearing in mind this 40 years ago today, contraception was still illegal without a prescription. It was another year before that came off prescription. Marital rape wasn't a crime. That came off the statute books in 1999. Homosexuality was illegal at the time. That didn't, uh, that didn't come off the statute books until 1993. And of course, in 1984, Magdalene laundries were still very much in operation. But then it was Anne's death that prompted a huge outpouring of anger and of uh, grief. And the one thing I can clearly remember from that time uh, 40 years ago was the Gay Byrne show, which was on about this time uh, Monday to Friday, wasn't it? Was he on from 9 to 11 or was he on from 10 to 12? Anyway, it was a morning. It was a morning uh, show and it was in the days after the Anne Lovett inquest that people started writing to the Gay Byrne show so much so that they got so many letters that for one show they dedicated the two full hours to just reading out the letters that they had received from women all over the country telling their stories of pregnancy outside of marriage telling of how they they were rejected by society how forced adoptions uh, were done and others openly spoke in anonymous letters obviously of how they had fleed to England for abortion because they knew if they stayed and stayed pregnant they knew what their life ahead was going to be like. One listener for example wrote the reaction to the tragic death of young Anne Lovett has been typically Irish looking for an inquiry looking for someone to blame we are all to blame. Those who say they cannot see how such a thing could happen in Irish society today are blind. At the time this Letter writer said the biggest tragedy is that it has taken the death of a young girl to highlight the repressive attitude to young mothers. And Dr. Patrick McGarity, he's a senior lecturer in public policy in MTU. He's writing in the paper today and he's saying while the tragedy humanised the dilemma faced by girls and women who were pregnant and unmarried in the 1980s Ireland, it would then go on to take many, many years of very diverse debates for more secular and supportive state to uh, emerge. And of course, in, in and still even 40 years on, as I say, it's just, it's a topic that just doesn't get discussed in Granard. Nobody wants to uh, talk about it and I can understand it's it's obviously they all know that the, the family involved in all of that. But I think uh, I think it should be spoken about because I don't think Anne Lovett should ever be forgotten because her death 
did spark change. The change might have taken uh, some time to happen, but I think it's only right that we will always remember the name of uh, Anne uh, Lovett. And to this day, it is still unclear who is who was the father of Anne's little baby, uh, Patrick. So may Anne Lovett and her little baby, Patrick, may they continue to rest in peace. But we remember her today on this day, 40 years ago. I'm being berated by Harry, one of our listeners, uh, to say, Patricia, I'm surprised that you didn't open the show by mentioning the St. Patrick's Day trips around the globe by our esteemed elected representatives. Are you going to ignore that they were announced yesterday? No, no, I have it here in front of me, Harry. It was... um, um my list of to-do things for today with the announcement yesterday, a total of 35 ministers and ministers of state will be travelling abroad along with the Ceoncorla, Sean O'Farrell and the Cahirlic of the uh, Senate, Jerry Bottomer and of course the Attorney General uh, also gets to go over uh, seas. And I do, a, well I do a, a rundown through uh, the list if you're of a sensitive nature uh, maybe go for a little bit of walk for a minute because I know this is, this is going to upset a lot of people. OK, who's going where? And uh, they're all going, it, it varies across a week and over two weeks in the lead up to St. Patrick's Day. Leo Varadkar is going to the United States. Micheál Martin, Canada. Eamon Ryan, Brazil. Michael McGrath, China. Pascal Donoghue, France and Bulgaria. Simon Coveney, India and Bangladesh. Norma Foley, pulled a short straw. She's just going to the UK. Catherine Martin, the United States. Dara O'Brien, South Africa and Zambia. Heather Humphreys, United States. Charlie McConnell, Minister for Agriculture, going to Kenya, Ethiopia and South, South Sudan. Roderick O'Gorman, he's going to Japan, Tokyo and Osaka. Stephen Donnelly, the Health Minister, he's going down under to Australia. Simon Harris, also going to the UK, just going to London. Helen McEntee, United States, she's going to New York. Hildegard Nocton will be in Singapore for St. Patrick's Day, while Peter Burke, United States, is going to Atlanta and Savannah. Sean Fleming is going to Nigeria and Ghana. Patrick O'Donovan, another one heading stateside to St. Louis and Kansas City. Oshin Smith goes to Korea. Josepha Madigan is packing her bags to go to Switzerland. Nile Collins, also in the States, Cleveland and uh, Pittsburgh. Jack Chambers goes to New Zealand, where he'll visit Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland. Senator Pipper Hackett going to Finland, Estonia and Latvia. Martin Hayden goes to Germany and Rabbit will be in Sweden and Denmark. Neil Richmond, Croatia and Slovenia. Joe O'Brien is going to the Netherlands and Belgium. Kieran O'Donnell, Slovakia, Austria, Czech Republic. Malcolm Noonan goes to Poland and Romania and I'm nearly finished. Dara Kileri goes to Peru, Chile and Argentina. Thomas Byrne, stateside Phoenix and Los Angeles. Jennifer Carol McNeil, also in the United States of America. She goes to Miami, Costa Rica and Mexico. James Brown goes to Vietnam. Mary Butler will be flying the flag in Cyprus, Italy and the Holy See. Sean O'Farrell goes to Spain and Portugal. Jerry Buttermer is going to the States. He'll be visiting San Francisco and Seattle. And Rossa Fanning, the uh, Attorney General, is going to Washington and Boston. That is the full list of the our 35 ministers along with the two Keon Corlas and the Attorney General and where they are uh, going. And they'll be doing their best uh, to try to put the best foot forward for Ireland and to sell Ireland abroad. It's seen by other countries as a great, great chance for a small little country like Ireland to be able to go away and sell itself to so many countries across the world. 
But for others, people get very irked every single year when this list gets mentioned. People get very annoyed. They see it as a waste of money. Yet the government ministers themselves uh, will tell you no, that there's a payback because if they can sell Ireland abroad, it can come back. I mean, it's very hard to put a monetary value on how much is made from these trips. We'll certainly be able to put a monetary value on how much it'll cost the exchequer, but it's always very hard to say how much it comes back uh, from it. Your thoughts welcome to 0818 103 103. Is it only right and proper that we have that many people, 38 people uh, going away? I'm just wondering who's left to look after the country while they're, who's who's here to keep the lights on at home? I'd have to put my thinking cap on to see is there any of the government ministers there that wasn't mentioned who's decided to stay home instead? Schools will be obliged to record all incidents of bullying behaviour for the first time under new rules to be published by the Department of Education. The updated procedures will shine a light on the extent of bullying in our schools and to explain why this is so important I'm joined by Pat Ford who is founder of the website stopthebully.ie Good morning to you Pat Hi, good morning Patricia, how are and, you? Thanks uh, for having me on. Well, great, great to talk to you At the moment Pat, do we have any idea of how much bullying goes on at our schools? Do you know what Patricia, it's a grey area um, because look, I, I walk nationally around the country and you know, I, I think, to, to be perfectly honest you, sometimes with kids there's a bit of a misunderstanding as to what exactly, you know, qualifies as bullying, what doesn't. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, you know there's, there's a lot of differences even from school to school, how, how this stuff is handled, to be perfectly honest with you. And kind of, you know, what, what I would say, look, I mean, to be honest with you, I've, I've been in hundreds of schools kind of all over the country. It happens everywhere. You know, okay. and it does. You know, so there's no point. There's no point any school saying we don't have a bullying issue. That's. Do, do, do you know what, Patricia? You know, to be perfectly honest with you, for me, if a school come to me and say, "Look, Pat, we don't have any bullying issues here," you know, to me, they're either not telling me the truth, or you know, they're they're blind. They're blind by something. Um, quite often, look. To be honest with you, quite quite often, look. I know. I know things can go on the radar, under the radar of schools, teachers, and principals. They don't hear every conversation that happens, you know. But by by and large, I find look that most schools they, they do acknowledge that it does happen, mm. you know. And and I but think no that, you know, school. I I certainly have noticed in commentary that we have got into the program uh, over the years. No school wants the reputation that bullying goes on in a particular school. Yeah, did you know what? It, it's a it's a funny one, right? You know, they they don't. Patricia, no, nobody wants to kind of go, you know be be known for it. Um, you know, but but yet it happens everywhere. But what I'm finding is, you know, I, I'm finding a more open attitude with a lot of schools that I deal with now where they will acknowledge that it does good. happen, um, you know, which is a good thing. You know, I suppose kind of one, one kind of concern that I would have as well with regards to, you know, I suppose what's been suggested in terms of recording bullying, you know, bullying incidents, you know, and, and I've seen this kind of happen in a couple of schools me, I'm very interested to see exactly what's going to happen because I think it's a very dangerous ground to kind of walk on to kind of label a particular kid a bully. Um, you know, because I, I've been in schools where maybe there might be an attitude, okay, from other parents or families, we got to get a certain kid, you know, we have to get justification for this. There isn't always justification for these, um, you know, for bullying behaviour and bullying incidents. You know, and I, I, I just, I suppose, a, a concern that I have with what's been suggested 
you know, look, my next, my next couple of, you know, my, my next, my next, um, I suppose my next bullying gigs for me, you know, I, I'm actually down in Cork soon. I'm working with Youthreach down there. I actually go to a youth detention centre in Dublin tomorrow, um, where you know I am going to be working with kids that have obviously got into got into trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we, we need to talk about you know behaviours. We need to address them. You know, parents. Yeah, it isn't all about it isn't all no, all about labelling somebody. Um, no, it's not because I mean, there's so many that. so many records of bullying by that particular person. He or she must be the, uh, be, be the bully. But you work with children affected by bullying. Yes. How do, do how does yeah. it impact on their lives, Pat? Do, do you know what I've seen situations where it's not just the kids, but it but it's literally destroyed families' lives as well because it's obviously very upsetting for kids. It's a very Look, you know, it, it it obviously causes a lot of depression in kids. What I'm seeing, um, as particularly since lockdown, is a lot of kids that are, you know, maybe pulling away from social situations, pulling back from school, um, because of the anxiety that this is causing for people. Um, you know, and again, you know, for for me as well, and I know, look, we're kind of talking, um, you know, early morning. And there's hopefully not a lot of kids listening into this, but you know, I, I am seeing a lot of incidents where kids are self harming. Wow. And yeah, you know, some, because some because of bullying. Yeah, because of bullying, and, and and sometimes as well. I mean, look, you know, I suppose you know sometimes because this, you know, it's been ta- you know these things have been talked about. They've been told to do do certain things. Um, you know, there's a lot of very harmful TikTok trends. And stuff like that that are, that are going on around the country at the moment, which aren't really been talked about, but these are being used as a tool to bully a lot of young people and um, to pressure and to pressure them into doing certain things. You know, and for, for me personally, in the last week, I spoke to an ambulance driver who's had two kids in the back of his ambulance um, because of this stuff. So, well, and, so yeah, and I, sadly, I, I, we've seen lives lost. You know, I yeah, mean, that's why we yeah. have Coco's Law. You know, I know there was yeah, an online. Yeah, yeah. We and do, do, and, and do parents often feel helpless when a child is a victim of bullying? Yeah, do, do you know what? I, I I only actually spoke to parents, and I, I did a talk in Wexford about a week ago, week maybe two weeks ago. And yeah, a lot of parents they feel completely helpless to this, right? But a lot of parents can also be very complacent um, with regards to this stuff as well, Patricia. And I suppose for me, doing doing the work that I do, I mean, look, I see my role in schools and working with families, you know, and other organisations. My role is to make life easier for people. And I see that there's a lot of complacency, particularly with with regards to mobile phones and that. I mean, look, if you were to do a poll of your listeners this morning, I would guarantee you that an awful lot of your listeners with young kids and teenagers, you know, that the kids are keeping their phones in their bedroom at night time, um, you know, so you don't know what they're saying, you don't know what they're being subjected to. Um, and there seems to be kind of this, you know, complacency with parents, but sure, look, everybody else's kid has a phone. Sure, my child has told me all their friends have a phone, you know, in particular with regards to cyberbullying. So I have to give my kid a phone because he's telling me all his friends have, you know, and as I said, there's an awful lot of complacency. And for me, like some of the more serious issues that I have seen that I have had to deal with, you know, classroom situations where, you know, there's there's been particularly nasty stuff going on. It's not always the big cities that this stuff happens in. Quite often it's the smaller 
communities that are more vulnerable because you get more of that complacency where people think, okay, sure, this isn't going to happen here. You know, this isn't going to happen in Mallow. This isn't going to happen. Yeah, we live. We, uh, yeah, we live in a nice yeah. small rural town that only yeah. happens uh, in in the city. So, what is your advice to parents when it comes to the whole topic of bullying, Pat? I, look, I think communication is the key. To be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, we need to be having regular conversations with our parents, with our kids, um, not just dwelling on the negative stuff that they see in school, but, you know, talking to them about their social lives, talking to them about the good stuff that they see. I think, yeah, it is important to, you know, to, to keep an eye on your kids, you know, watch out for changes of behaviour, stuff like that that might concern you. At the end of the day, nobody knows your kid better than you. And if you, if you have a concern... I think the number one thing people need to do is to go and talk to your school about it. I think sometimes parents fall into the trap sometimes of maybe discussing bullying issues too much in front of their kids. Okay. Um, you know, and, and to me what that quite often does, unfortunately, is kind of reinforce the message to the kid that, look, you're a, you're a target. Okay, you're a victim here. Where they're not, they're... they're, they're, they're you know, they're the target of somebody's bad behaviour. Yeah, okay, and we can change it. Yeah, and you need you to know? work on on that that, that child's yeah, um, self esteem. It. It's interesting yeah, when you say a learned behaviour. Uh, talk to me about the bully themselves. I mean, do you believe that that, that bullying is a learned behaviour? Yeah, I, you know what I, I see quite a lot of that. Um, where bullying itself is a learned behaviour, and I also see. I mean, look. You know, traditionally we talk about the bully as being, you know, maybe someone with low self-esteem themselves, somebody with, um, you know, maybe sometimes, and I have seen cases where kids had been maybe bullied in primary school and gone into secondary school and, you know, didn't want to be subjected to that, so, you know, that they copy that behaviour. But to me as well, um, one thing that I see a lot, and I think it's an, an important conversation to have with kids and teenagers, is the effect, firstly, that peer pressure can have on this. You know, I mean, I, only um, only on Monday I sat with a classroom and I did a very simple experiment, a very simple social experiment with a group of teenagers. And very quickly, it was very easy to get them to copy each other and to give similar answers to their friends. There's a lot of young people out there that don't think of themselves as a bully. Um, but if their friends decide to gossip about somebody or push somebody out, you know, they, they, they literally just go along with the kids, with their with their with their friends. No, the other extreme that I see as well where bullying has been, has been learned as well and it's, again, it's not something we talk about a lot but it's from the home sometimes. You know, and like what I would say to your parents, to, to parents listening in this morning, um, I deal with a lot of young people that get, in, that get get into trouble in school, okay, that do go into school with maybe the wrong attitude or an aggressive attitude and what a lot of these, these kids tell me is that, you know, that the advice they've been given from home is if somebody slags you in school, if somebody does something mean or nasty to you, well, look, you know, you knock that person's head off. You know, you kill mm-hmm. them, you don't take it. You know, and, and it's, it's kind of shocking to hear that, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. But if a parent has a concern about uh, a child that they feel is getting a bit withdrawn and they're fearful that there might be bullying go- going on, yeah. should they always engage with the school and let 100%. the school know? Yeah. Do you know what? A hundred percent. And it's something, Patricia, that it's the number one complaint that parent, that schools make to me when I go in on the back of a pretty serious incident sometimes, or maybe where a kid has left or a kid has withdrawn from school, that quite often the schools tell me, Pat, you know, the parents never told us, you know. They just assumed that we would know. 
you know, and look, you know, you you have to engage with the school. Now, sometimes, look, I understand, you know, I've been in a number of schools kind of around your listenership area where, you know, there's some pretty big schools there, you know, and, and, and maybe sometimes, look, you know, rather than going to the principal, go to a class teacher. You know, if your kid is in secondary school, you know, sometimes a principal gets a lot of stuff put at them. Um, you know, maybe talk to a year head, okay, or talk to a class tutor, somebody who's kind of closer maybe to the kids um, than, you know, than, than, you know, than the person kind of, at, at, you know, at the top, because quite often these are the people that will, um, you know, that are around the kids a lot. They can keep an eye on the kids. They can keep an eye on situations. And look, being honest with you, you know, sometimes a simple word or a simple, you know, a bit of reassurance sometimes from from a from a teacher or, you know, ju- just letting the right person know in the school so they can keep an eye on these situations. You know, when there is bullying going on, um, you know, obviously a lot of kids and teenagers, they don't want to be seen as snitching sometimes or whatever. But by you telling the kid, telling the school about it, you're not going to make the situation worse. You're going to put the school in a situation where they can keep an eye on your child, you can protect them. And believe you me, if there is something going on, they'll spot it. Yeah, someone is saying uh, 20 years or more ago, uh, bullying was being talked uh, was being talked about, and this was all prior to social media. Caller said yeah. at uh, one school that this caller knows of had a policy where once a month a questionnaire was issued to every every pupil. The questions being asked were, are you being bullied? Do you know anyone else being bullied? Are you bullying anyone? If you knew anyone being bullied, would you report it? They put the onus very much on the pupils to look out for each other. That's not a bad yeah. idea. And, and some yeah, schools no, are great, aren't they, with anti-bullying some, policies? Yeah. Yeah, some, some schools are fantastic, and and that particular approach, um, I've encountered other schools that have done that. You know where they've surveyed kids, and again, what that does, rather than going okay, let's report to the kids who's the bully all the time, what you're doing is you're promoting a healthy a healthy culture amongst the kids where they know certain behaviours have been watched out for, certain behaviours might get me into trouble here. You know, and again, going back to the behaviours, you know, it can't always be the threat that, okay, you know, let's just wait for something to happen and we're going to report it and we're going to label a kid a bully and there's a lot of kids out there. If you label them, you know, been bold or been a bully or whatever, you know, to be honest, it's just something that can make the, situa- the situation a lot okay. more. Okay, what, what, what advice would you give here? Um, a grandmother has been on to say that her granddaughter has been badly bullied in school about her weight. Now, the parents' attitude to the daughter is just ignore the bullies and it'll it'll stop. Um, the daughter is afraid that if the parents go in and talk to the principal of the school, that it'll be raised and she'll be singled out. It's, it's two girls in her class in particular are doing the bullying. Yeah, I mean, what, what I would say is you can you can talk to the school about it. You don't necessarily need to tell the girl that you've spoke to the school about it because, again, you know, look, you need to protect her. The school needs to go, you know, the school needs to... Um, need you know, to be, be told. Be yeah. But I, look, for me, quite often, um, for me, I, I, when I go to classrooms, I teach a lot of kids assertiveness skills as well. So sometimes part of this is that the kids themselves or teenagers themselves need to be taught to speak up for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's to learn to stop, cough on, <coughs> yes. 
Okay, you listen, know, and, and, and I'm over on time. I have to say you've got an excellent uh, website. If, if people want to check it out, I would suggest anyone who's got any concerns at all about bullying to go to Pat's uh, website, which is called stopthebully.ie. Pat, I know we'll speak again, but thank you for that and thanks for joining thanks, us on the programme. Thanks so much. Good morning okay. to you. That is uh, Pat Ford, founder of stopthebully.ie. Uh, Darren has been on to say, I worked in a place where I was really badly uh, bullied. I was there for years. I actually loved working there uh, and I have many happy memories, but it just got so bad. I had to leave. I'm out of there now two years and in a much happier place. Uh, the day I left, I didn't even get a card. Um, it was just a horrible work environment, but I'm so lucky that where I've moved on to, I'm in a wonderful new place uh, now. I'm following my dreams and I'm in a much happier place and that's an adult facing bullying. Three of Ireland's leading cancer charities, namely Breast Cancer Ireland, Breakthrough Cancer Research and the Marie Keating Foundation have all joined forces for the first time ahead of World Cancer Day and a World Cancer Day is next Sunday the 4th of February to discuss the new campaign entitled Face Up to Cancer. I'm joined by Orla Dolan who is of course CEO of Breakthrough Cancer uh, Research. Good morning to Orla. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? Uh, uh, I'm very good. Always great to chat to you. Now, I love this idea. It's a digital fundraising campaign. So just explain what you're asking people to do here. So, um, as you rightly said, it's three cancer charities coming together for the first time. And the name of the campaign is Face Up to Cancer. And I suppose it's digitally driven. And what we're asking people to do is is, um, upload or donate an image of themselves, like a selfie or a photograph, and donate and what's unique about it is that on the website for face up to cancer you will meet nine people who are represented who kind of take the gamut of people who've been you know bereaved or have lost somebody to cancer and it's the family left behind it's people who've been who are going through cancer or have had cancer in the past and also researchers and those faces are then going to be replaced by all the images of everybody's faces in the country as they come together so kind of like pixels they will actually form a mosaic to take over the original portrait of a person and so really kind of what it represents is is this is the kind of the many faces of cancer the people who have lost people the people who have survived thankfully and those who are working behind the scenes to make that happen but how we all as a community have to kind of um, come together to really impact things going forward and so you know if you don't want to donate your, your face you know you can just still donate but I think it's a really lovely idea yeah, that I lo- you know, we're I, all I love coming it. together yeah you know and, I mean? and when so. when will we be able to see the final facial mosaics yeah so so like as you said it kind of we started this week like world cancer day is when it really kind of drives on and then as as everybody assembles those things towards the end of the month of february then we will actually display them but if you donate your selfie it will kind of give you an image with a kind of a face around it so you can share it on your social media okay then people are emailed back you know at at the end of the month they're emailed here is where you are on one of those portraits and then we will display them in a few places around the country that's brilliant that that, that is brilliant And, and you're leaving it up to people to give as little or as much as they can. Yeah, I mean, even some people have donated a selfie and they they may not donate. But obviously, what we're trying to do here, besides shine a light on all these different things and the very positive stories that we have, 
and you know the fact that one in two of us will be impacted by cancer in our lifetime you know means that we all have to care so you know you can go on the website there's there's some small donation amounts you can set your own amount um you know and but ultimately it's split three ways between the charities so you know everybody benefits and it in our case it goes into research into the harder to treat cancers the ones that you know um brain and lung and pancreatic the, the very difficult to treat cancers that we need more options for obviously Mary Keating do on the ground support services and awareness and breast cancer research Ireland and uh, breast cancer Ireland sorry they're doing research into a advanced metastatic can, uh, breast, breast cancer, cancer so yeah. so we're covering all of the well done, things coming well, together uh, you know. well, uh, well done and and as you say your organisation is particularly important because it's it's really the ones with the, the poor um, uh, prognosis are you solely dependent Orla on fundraised money for your research Absolutely. We wow. are 100% funded uh, by generosity. We don't get any guaranteed funding any year. Um, we start the, the beginning of the year at zero and uh, a pressure on the team to keep going. But, um, you know, it's the generosity of the public is what allows us to do what we do. The belief in the fact that research has driven a huge amount of progress. And, um, you know, the people, you know, I suppose the great thing is that we have to over 220,000 people in Ireland are cancer survivors now and we have had massive progress in some cancers I suppose we put our research investment in the ones we just haven't seen enough change in and that need more options now we're smart with the funding that we get we do try and leverage the money so if people donate to us then we will try and secure match funding and things like that to make it go even further but um, you know we're, it allows us to support research all over the island of Ireland and we have astoundingly brilliant and bright researchers here and clinicians um, and I suppose this allows us to channel investment into into them and into their work where they're trying to make more survivors really which and, is what and, we're all and about. you are getting results Absolutely. I mean, you know, we can point to people whose lives have been transformed, you know, by things that have come out of the lab and into clinical trials. And I think that's the thing that we're most proud of. But every single piece of research we do adds new knowledge and allows us to understand why, you know, find a way to detect cancer earlier, find why some cancers have stopped responding, find a way around that and a new approach, I suppose. Um, you know, I know myself, my own, my own father died of cancer and I often kind of talk about the fact that the first day he was diagnosed was obviously incredibly shocking and a huge kick in the gut and just not something we ever expected to hear as a family and um, hard to take um, but you know you now have a plan and you have a road you're going down and this is what we're going to do it when it, 22 months later and they brought us in and they said there was nothing left and everything they'd, they'd tried had stopped working that's the devastating day that's the day that research takes away it's to always try and make sure there's something else to try and I suppose that's what everybody behind this campaign is committed to and that's what you're a part of when you're trying to when you get involved in a campaign like this is, yeah. is trying to take that day away yeah. and make sure there's always you something do, else to you try. do incredible work and I've, I've spoken to so many people over the years who you know all hope was given up and then suddenly there was a new trial that they were able to get on and there's people alive today and there's people listening to this programme are only here because of various cancer research trials um, that they're they're, they're, they're still on. And I was blown away to read that cancer has overtaken heart disease as the most common cause of death in Ireland. I, was, I always thought it was heart uh, disease. So we need to be working all the harder to diagnose and find the cures, don't we? We do. I mean, look, the best, you know, if anybody's offered screening, 
go. The best opportunity we ever have in any cancer is to find it early and to catch it early. We always do better in that way. And so, so you know, if there are screening services for different types of cancer in the country, uh, you know, use them, adapt them, don't ignore them, don't ignore any signs. You know, research and those things are then trying to find ways, can we get a blood test or some way to can detect a cancer really before it has a chance to hold, uh, take hold. And then obviously, if for the more advanced cancers, bringing more treatments through. And and I totally agree with you what you just said there a minute ago. I can't, I've, I've had stories where people were staring down the barrel. They had said, I've done my bucket list. Things aren't going to change. I know where this is going. And something came in time for them. And they're the stories we want to celebrate. And they're the stories we want more of. Okay, people have a chance. Face up to cancer.ie. And I can't let the moment pass while while you're online. Uh, Let's uh, let's not forget to mention your, your West Cork lunch. That is on Saturday week, 10th of February, West Cork Hotel in Skibbereen. Um, how are tickets going? Because I remember last year they sold out quite quickly. Yeah, now I actually have been away for a few days. There was loads <laughs> gone before I left. Okay. So I'm actually, I haven't heard, but um, I'm sure they'll, we'll, we'll squeeze people Just... in if we have to. Um, no, and it's, and Brendan Courtney is our special guest this year and he'll be great because, you know, he could talk about everything from fashion to homewares. Yeah, to just, he's terrific. You know, anything, he's terrific. So so I'm sure it'll be a lovely day. It's a, usually a really relaxed day, lovely goodie bags. There's usually boots for, um, you know, for people to do a little bit of shopping during the kind of pre function and um, you know it's just was a lovely relaxed day last year so we're hoping for the same well, again. I'm sure um, I'm, you know. I'm, I'm sure you'll have another full house at the West Cork Hotel in Skibbereen and that's on uh, Saturday the 10th of February. Good luck with that and good luck with this campaign Face Up to Cancer Orla always a privilege to have you on the programme. Thank you for that. Thanks Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye bye. Orla Dolan CEO of Breakthrough Great Cancer Research, they are an amazing organisation. They really are. And all of the other organisations that work with uh, cancer, cancer patients and cancer survivors are, are, are incredible as well. But what they do, uh, it's that research. It's the money has to go into the research to give people hope. Because I think when you get that cancer diagnosis, it's hope more than anything is what you want, the person who gets the cancer, but for your family members as well. Uh, let us never be able to never take that hope away. As we've been hearing all morning, Cork's iconic GAA state Stadium Porky Cueve is to be renamed Super Value Porky Cueve. It's part of a new 10-year partnership with Ireland's leading supermarket retailer. The matter of naming rights will now be finalised at a special meeting of delegates, which is going to happen uh, tomorrow at Cork County Board. Fimmer McCarthy, our GAA correspondent, is all over the story this morning and he joins me. Good morning, Good morning to you, Fimber. It's a good job in retired, Tricia. It is indeed. Now, did, did, peop, did, did people power win out here in that super value pork was never going to be a runner, not for Cork people? I would think so. I think uh, the general consensus, as I said to you the last time, Patricia, was that Park O'Keefe had to be included in the name, giving the historical nature and the significance of it. And I think eventually uh, both Super Value and Park and the Cork GA accepted that fact. And here we are now with more going before the board meeting tomorrow night, which I think will pass unanimously. Was a name sponsor for Porky Cueve? Was it always on the cards? Oh, yes, very much so. I, I mean, looking back ever since the stadium was built, I can remember a time when um, Bob Ryan was chairman of the steering committee and he said it's something we would be looking at down the road. And obviously, if if you look at all major stadia in, in Ireland, they all, the majority of them now have a, have, a, have a brand name in front of them. And I think given Cork's financial predicament, 
and, and it's well documented what, how bad it is that they needed this. And uh, I don't see an issue. I, as I said, the last day, Patricia, no one really had an issue with the name, provided Parky Keeve was retained. And I think they've gone down that road now. And it, it is the way to go. It, it, it's the way the world knows commercial commercial is necessity to get this done. Yeah, yeah. And in fairness to, to Cork GAA, it's taken some time. I mean, 17 of the 32 county GAA grounds now have corporate names. And the first was actually Breffany Park in uh, Cavan when they went for Kingspan Breffany Park. And that was back in 2002. I, I was shocked oh, to see it was that long ago. Had, yeah, I didn't realise it was that long ago because it, it's a stadium I, I've covered a game and I remember coming back one night myself and John Finton Daly driving all the way down. We took a wrong turning and we were we were, we were, we were critical of Kingspan Breffany Park that night. It was so <laughs> far away. But I didn't realise it was yeah. 21 years. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. amazing how, how time flies. So we, look, we've, said, we've caught up. We've cut up eventually, yeah. But I suppose I think uh, I, I I sent in audio there. I spoke to Kevin O'Donovan there this morning, and he he did say they were. Well, let's, I'll, I'll the, stop you there because I have it here in front of me. Let's hear what uh, Kevin O'Donovan okay. had to say. And Kevin, of course, is CEO of Cork GAA. Well, it was a process we were working through. It's always difficult when the process goes into the public domain then and you don't get to communicate with people you would like, like the clubs, like the family, etc. So, yeah, it becomes high octane stuff then. We were always focused on the prize and our relationship with Super Value, reaching a positive outcome for the clubs and the p- people in Cork. And we think we got there in the end. Are you surprised with the reaction to the initial name Super Value Park? Well, I suppose we were working through that process and we wanted to get to the clubs. And you know well from being a club delegate that that's where everything plays out in Cork GA. So it was only a discussion point on that night. Of course, when it comes out then and becomes crystallised, I think everybody would be surprised of how viral it went. You know, that it became so national. I no doubting the Cork people's passion for the O'Keefe name because I shared that passion. I'm from here too. I wanted to retain the name throughout this process. But I think when it went national, we all went, hmm, didn't realise Cork were that important, but maybe that's a nice feeling every now and again too. No, the deal, I know the, the commercial details won't be revealed until the board meeting tomorrow night, but the general consensus, it appears to be a better deal both financially and long term. Yeah, well, very positive. It, look, the deal, but I'll put it a toot in it, reflects the value we place on it and it reflects the value super value place on it. And the market will always tell you that. But it's the, it's the retention of the name alongside that deal means it's a win-win because they're the two mandates we have to fulfil. We have to generate commercial income to drive our games and to pay back debt. But our, our priority is also retaining the heritage of the place and building, standing on the shoulders of joints, as you've always heard me say. So that's why it's a good deal. It's a good deal on two fronts because we were fighting on two fronts. And 10 years would, would, would appear to solidify it. Yeah, we want that stability. And we've done that. You know from other deals that I've spoken of, County Board, about Sports Direct, O'Neill's, other great partners we have. We're in here for the long haul. And it, you see, it's more about the money. It's all about relationships. It's about trust. It's about in a good year, they win. And in a year when the Cork team's gone, so don't go so well, they hold their water. So you know yourself, the longer the marriage, the more stable it gets. So that's what we're looking for. And the income that this will generate will help promote our games, but hurling, football, obviously there are priorities at this stage. Yeah, yeah, and and you'll be well aware as well, Finbar, that we've always tried to keep the debt at arm's length from the clubs. 
we've always tried to deal with it as county management committee, stadium board, generate commercial income and let the clubs focus on their games. You'll see that with Rebels Bounty, you'll see that everything we do. So we are about the games, but there's a harsh reality that you have to fund those games. You know we've trebled our coaching staff over the last three months. You know we've invested another 25% in inter-county teams last year. So games is what we're about. Commercial reality, though, brings a bit of reality to what we do every day, and you're always balancing the two. And finally, Kevin, the county board meeting tomorrow night, I don't accept to be any objection now that Parky Heath has been retained in the name. No, and we had a good debate at the last meeting where there was a very balanced discussion. There was an overwhelming desire to retain the name, but we as officers share that desire. There was also an understanding that we had tough decisions to make, so it was very balanced and our hands were not tied in the discussion since, and that was vital because when you're in a commercial discussion, you're, you need to keep as many options open as possible. We feel there'll be an overwhelming support for it tomorrow night, but we still want to fulfil that democratic mandate. This does not fly. This stadium is not called Super Value Parky Keefe until the clubs give it their seal of approval tomorrow night. Okay, and the the ten year deal. I know. I know. Uh, Kevin said wouldn't reveal what is the monetary value of this deal. But were you surprised that it was a ten year deal? I was actually, particularly because the the initial deal was supposed to be for a three-year period and the money that, that wasn't as high as it is now, the figure we're getting now, obviously this is unofficial, it's something like 300,000 a year for a 10-year period, which is which seems to me, to be, I wouldn't be commercially into all this stuff now, as you can imagine, but it would appear to be a very, very good deal. And certainly, as I said, as he said there, for 10 years... It, it it takes it off the table. It takes it off the table for ten years, and look. Hopefully, it'll work out, and it'll be a good one. Three hundred thousand for ten years—that's three million. Yeah, yeah. And when you consider the debt is thirty million, it's 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 only a small chink in the debt. But look, it's a, it's it's a step. I would think anyway in in the right direction commercially. Okay, you also spoke to Tomas Mulcahy. Why, why why did you decide to speak to Tomas? Well, the man was there. He just happened to be there. All right, okay, and, uh, okay, all right, all right. He, I, I thought there was, was a particular reason, but he he was uh, he was part of the committee, wasn't he? Who who had? Well, he's involved in the in the one cock uh, one cock that they set up a couple of years ago, which looks at all these options and tries to raise funny raise money for the stadium. I know he was in America there a couple of weeks ago, prior to Christmas, uh, on a fundraising venture. So he just had to be there to do something for okay. Paulburn for Virgin Media. And I asked him, of course, he's a club mate of mine, so he was hardly going to refuse me. Anyway, okay, here, here's what Tomás Mulcahy had to say. Part of kind of the one core committee that have been here over the last number of years, part of our brief was, in terms of the commercialism of Parky Cueve, get, get um, premium level seats sold, get commercial advertising, advertising around the grounds, I think, which has taken place as well. And naming rights was always part and parcel of this. The minute this stadium was built... Naming rights was part of the business plan and look, we're no different to any of the other stadiums around the country and you take Simple Stadium or Gaelic Grounds or you take Nolan Park and you have uh, FBD Simple Stadium, you have two Gaelic Grounds, you have UP- UPMC, Nolan Park. So it's it, it was only a matter of time that this was going to happen. What delights me is that I think um, both parties on either side listened in terms of what came about. Uh, Parky Cueve listened and Super Value listened and... Um, we all expected it to be announced at some stage that it would be Super Valley Parky Cueve. And I'm glad. I'm glad for the the Cueve family and stuff like that as well who came out very strong about it. I'm glad for a lot of GA folklore as well that were kind of concerned that we would lose the Parky Cueve name. And I think it's it's great that it's retained. That was a general consensus, Tomás, that once Parky Cueve was retained in the name, it didn't matter what, what, other vet, what other name was in front of it because it is a histor- he was a historic part of the GA and it was important that it be kept. 
Oh, absolutely, and I was very strong in advance of that myself when when it was was when it was put in the airways that it was going to be Super Value Park. I didn't like it, to be honest with you, and I was very strong about Parky Creek being retained. So, um, and you got to look at the commercial side of it, uh, and the boys sitting up in the hot seats above in Parky Creek, and you know the pressure it's on with a thirty million debt and getting revenue in and the expenditure of teams. You know, I think last year they mentioned here was it two million spend in terms of teams. Which is, it's an awful lot of money and it's an awful lot of revenue that you've got to get in no matter what every year. So, I mean, if the super value money can help and it can go to coaching and it can go to grassroots and some other side of it looks after the debt and the repayment side of it. And for at the end of the day, you know, you've been travelling the country long at the same length of time as me, maybe longer than me now. You're a bit older, right? You know, yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah, you're a bit older. But it's about, once the final day, it's about all our series day. We need success. Right, and if that if these funds can go and contribute to that, I think it's it's it, we, oh, and we've all Ireland titles down here, and we continue on the success that we've had for so many many years with Sam McGuire and Emma McCarthy. That's the important thing. I mean, we need to have this place rocking. We need to have once the final days here. We have a full house, Cork supporters getting behind the teams and stuff like that as well. And I think that's important. This 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 is this this is a fantastic uh, achievement, a fantastic partnership. Santa Fila Pay now we need to be kind of delivering. So say all of us. Well done, um, uh, Tomas. Uh, and interesting that he mentioned uh, Padraig Equeve's family because they were very vocal when this story first broke. I'm assuming they're being kept in the loop as to what's going on here. Yeah, I believe that uh, I think PJ played some statement on the opinion and there will go that the grandson issued and he was delighted that uh, that the name has been retained. He wasn't. He's he's not giving any media interest. Today. I think he probably got enough with the last day. I think they're happy that the name, that their grand, grandfather's name has been retained. And okay. I think that's, that'll be the general consensus. That that one, the general consensus, Patricia, at the last meeting was everybody accepts the county board need to have sponsorship, but they, they did not want the name Parky Heath taken off. And once that's in the, in the name tomorrow night, I think it'll pass okay. comfortably. All right, before we let you go, I have to acknowledge what happened last weekend and congratulate you because you are the main man behind <laughs> 20 years of the C103 and, and 96 FMGA awards. Hard to believe that it's uh, 20 years and you've really been the backbone of those awards. Uh, so well done. And another great night last Friday. Yeah, fabulous night. Congratulations to all the winners. Uh, look, I was completely taken by surprise when Kieran got up and spoke and uh, to get a lovely presentation. As I said to me, it is nicely placed at home. But look, there's just more to me. I, I'm just the face of it. But everybody in the station, both C103, John Paul was there doing interviews, Ken Perrett, Kelly, the whole lot, everyone. It's a team effort. Just to, just that I happen to do all the talking. Okay, That's well, it. let's <laughs> r- roll on to the 21st next year. Okay, listen, Thanks, we leave Patricia. it there, Thank Finbar. You. Thanks a million. That's Finbar McCarthy, our GAA uh, commentator. 0818103103. There was a text in earlier for somebody who's having a problem with water and I'm just after seeing the answer has come in. This is a listener in McAuliffe Avenue in Bohabwe was having problems, uh, hasn't a drop of water coming out of her tap this, mor- the, this morning. Even though this listener is saying that it hap- it's happened regularly and it's something to do with water pressure. I don't, I don't know what's the ongoing problem uh, in Bohabwe, but we got on to Ishka Aaron uh, to say that there are repairs ongoing to a burst water main and it is affecting t- supply to some areas of Liz Robin, Kiskame, Ballydesmond, Knocknagree, Bohabwe and the surrounding areas and they're working on it and it'll be about four o'clock before full power is restored to all of their areas. So just to let that listener 
in McAuliffe Avenue in Boerbury. It isn't an internal issue in your house. It was a burst water main. 0818 Childminder is wanted for a two-year-old and a three-year-old. For, sorry, for a two-year-old and three school-going children. It's in the Liscarrel area. Now, school drop-offs and pickups obviously will be necessary. 87 Teleporter driver wanted for a construction project that's in the Bishopstown Waterfall area. 087-165-0527. Community employment vacancies are available in Formoy, in Kilworth and in Araglan. For caretakers and an assistant youth worker, contact Michelle. 87 087- Four five nine nine two five at zero, and Hallisey and Partners Solicitors in Bandham are looking for a full or part-time secretary, CVs, and a cover letter, please, to Eileen Collins at hplaw.ie, and please mark it for the attention of Eileen Collins, the office manager. Or you can post it directly to their offices at forty-one South Main Street in Bandham. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Now on the programme, we've often featured the great work of volunteer beach cleaners who go out nearly every weekend and help to pick up litter, especially plastic items from all of our beautiful coastline. Well, for the first time ever, a group of deep sea divers will embark on a nationwide beach clean underwater. And to find out more, I'm joined by Emma Toot, who's director of Sea Shepherd Ireland. Good morning to you, Emma. Good morning, Patricia. How are you doing today? I'm I'm very well and you're very welcome to the programme. I suppose, firstly, tell me a little bit about your organisation, Sea Shepherd Ireland. Yes, of course. So Sea Shepherd um, Ireland is under a global umbrella um, of Sea Shepherd Global, which is an international non-profit marine conservation organisation. We engage in direct action uh, campaigns to defend wildlife, to conserve and protect the world's oceans. Uh, So here in Ireland, we're all about protecting, conserving and um, uh, looking after the oceans all around the Irish coast. And I'm not sure if you know this, but we have 3,171 kilometres of coastline around Ireland. Yep. That's a lot beautiful. to cover. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're in Ireland. We have we have a lot of a coastline and beautiful coastline that must be protected. Indeed. And what, you were, mm-hmm. what you're embarking on is part of the international ghost net campaign. So talk to us a little bit about what, what ghost nets are. Yes, of course. So the um, ghost nets are basically nets that are abandoned or lost or damaged due to catching on rocks. When um, p- people are out there fishing, they can throw their nets over the side of the boat and oftentimes damage and um uh, loss can happen from them. So they sink to the bottom, basically, um, or they can float in the middle of the ocean. And what that does is it causes very uh, big problems for the animals in the ocean because they can often get caught up, entangled in those nets. Um, so what we, what our mission is, is to clear out the ocean from these uh, hazards for our marine life. Um, we've often seen 
um, animals getting trapped in these uh, fishing nets and just, you know, they suffocate basically down in the ocean because they can't breathe uh, when they're not moving. Um, so <clears throat> we want to save them from this uh, harrowing death, basically, and um, take care of uh, all those nets that are going to be uh, harmful to them. So what we are embarking on is uh, something we haven't done before here in Ireland, in Sea Shepherd Ireland. And... Um, we are going out with a team of divers and um, there'll be three at all times and uh, two will be going down to where the nets would be uh, maybe trapped around rocks at the bottom or possibly just floating and they will attach on a bag that would be inflated and it would bring the nets up to the surface so that those on the surface on the boat can collect those nets and bring them back to shore. Um, what's really important about this whole campaign is obviously it is saving a lot of animal lives but also we want to find an end of life solution for these nets. So it's not just bringing them back to land and leaving them there. We want mm. to have a situation where those nets can then be re- recycled and upcycled into products for people to use. Fantastic. Yeah, because we often on the beach cleans will see bits of nets, not, you know, mm-hmm. not the big nets you're, you're talking about, but some of them do make it on onto shore. But what you're, what you're talking about is the, the larger nets. And, and I mean, are the nets dumped at sea? Are they simply lost off the vessels? Um, well, oftentimes they'd be lost, to be honest, because okay. they are expensive. Um, so um, a lot of the times it would be purely by mistake that they could be lost or they, um, they're they oftentimes as well, we're looking at lobster pots um, or um, other um, ropes and things uh, cages and, and things like that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. For the yeah. oysters and things that maybe just got detached from the boys that, that they hold on to and they get lost that way. Um, so we, we're trying to think without malice, but there obviously is a lot of shipping happening, uh, a lot of fishing from ships, not not Irish ships, but other ships all around the all around Europe and all around the globe, come into our waters, and those nets can often get snagged as well. And part of the nets can be lost. It doesn't have to be the big, 
uh, big large nets it can be just particles of nets also that we'd be looking for to take out because they can harm smaller animals also and not only the animals of this underneath the water but if you think of all of our lovely seabirds that we have out there that we want to protect also because they can swallow them Oh, goodness, yeah. And I'm just thinking mm. as you're talking, Emma, I mean, this isn't just an Irish problem. This has got to be a problem worldwide. Yes, it is indeed. And uh, Sea Shepherd Global have um, chapters in a lot of the countries in Europe. So the likes of Sea Shepherd Italy have a campaign every year, a ghost net campaign that they go out. And they also have an octopus trap campaign where they go and collect the octopus traps that are put down illegally at the wrong time of the year for the octopus. Um, And obviously, like, you know, when we... When we do those kind of things that are at the wrong time of year, it impacts the food chain. So that was impacting the monk seal in the Mediterranean. And the monk seals were coming critically endangered. They've now been moved to um, endangered. They're still at risk, but it's a higher at risk than the, where they were before, which is a good news story. Um, but then it, likewise, we also do a campaign in the Baltic Sea with the German uh, Sea Shepherd um fleet up there. They have a boat there um, each year that goes out and they collect uh, kilometres, thousands of kilometres of nets, unfortunately, every single year. So there's the cleanup is happening at, in, in a lot of different places and there's, there's lots of great NGOs that are doing um, these kind of things. See, this one for Sea Shepherd, we have our own a specific SDI um, training course that is around the safety involved in getting these nets up. As you can imagine, Patricia, you know, these nets are in the ocean. They're moving with the waves. There's lots of unknowns about to go ahead. So these people need to be very, very highly trained on how to deal with this uh, situation at hand. Yeah, because I, I imagine that there is there can be a danger involved for deep sea divers because if they got entangled in one of these nets, Exactly. Yeah. So that's why there's always a team of three. There'd be one person sitting at the top and observing everything. And then there's two down the bottom. One would be a cutter. So they'd be cutting the net and the other one would be attaching the the lift bags to the to the um, nets that are down there. So there's they need to learn how to backpedal. They need to learn how to move with the current. Also, there's a lot of silt and sand and um, that can be kicked up and it can be completely black and dark down there. So it's um, it's really, really important that they are all very highly trained and we have our own specific Sea Shepherd um, ghost net retrieval training course that we have we can now offer in Ireland. Um, which is a fantastic thing that we were trying to accomplish for the last few years. So it's great. And brilliant that these deep sea divers are giving up their time and their and their skills uh, to take part. Well done. I remember a number of years ago, uh, Emma, I'm sure I watched it online. There was some research going in to trying to make biodegradable fishing nets. Yes, yeah, there has been a, a, attempts at doing things like this, but the, the all of this costs a lot of money. Yeah, and yeah. Um, biodegradable nets would be more expensive to buy, also. Um, and uh, you know, the the fish stock is just not out there at the moment for a lot of the fishermen, the artisan fishermen around the country. It, it's been our our waters have been overfished, yeah. so it doesn't it doesn't make sense to invest money in these type of nets that are costing more money when they're catching less. Yeah, so yeah, um, it's, it's, it, it yeah, would be really great if we could get them for the big trawlers um, or just get rid of the big trawlers altogether in the in the ocean because they are absolutely pillaging everything that we have. And the message is if the ocean die, dies, we die. I mean, that's yes, we, we have to remember that message. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because for every single second breath we take, 50% of our living space comes from the ocean. It is a carbon sink, but it also increases the oxygen in the the air with with everything that goes on, all the photosynthesis from all the seagrass um, and everything. And it's so important that we keep the ecosystem healthy around our country and around the world. So, you know, reducing your your plastic waste and all of these messages that have been out are all really good strong messages but at the end of the day if we don't do something drastic at this point we will all suffocate because we cannot breathe without the ecosystem of the ocean so just like that if the ocean dies we die and that's why at the end of every single beach clean that we do we thank the ocean with our second breath well done well done and are you looking for (laughs) are you looking for deep sea divers or do you have enough volunteers no, we are always looking for more volunteers for either um, you can be a diver or you can be on your way to learning how to dive or want to dive. We can get you in touch with our diving schools. Um, if you are interested in this campaign, we can get you. Uh, you need to be. There are three criteria for this specific training that we can talk about, but it's uh, you need to be over 21. You need to have at least 100 dives and um, you need to have the emergency training as well. Now it's we all can about set safety. that all up yeah. also. It's all, um, it's but all we about do safety. need volunteers, land and um, sea. So okay. uh, everybody's welcome to join us at volunteer at seashepherdireland.org. Good luck with it, uh, Emma. It's a fantastic uh, initiative. And thank you for joining us on the programme so this morning. Thank you so Good much. Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is uh, Emma Toot, who is Director of Sea Shepherd Ireland. And we wish the best of luck to all of those deep sea uh, divers as they go underwater to gather up as much of that ghost gear as they can. I mean, it's, it, it was interesting when I heard her talk, when I heard Emma, you know, when talk about the ghost nets, we were talking about the ghost ship. We've spoken so many times about the ghost ship down in East Cork. But of course, we also have the nets and lobster pots and other things that get stuck at the bottom of the sea. So good luck to all of the divers involved. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at C103.ie. Convenience talk to me. Cork today on C103. Now, writing a crime thriller is no mean achievement, but to write a trilogy of crime novels is, to me, an exceptional achievement. Amy Cronin is a Cork author, mother with young children, and her third and final crime thriller following the gripping story of Anna Clark and Kate Crowley and the Gallagher crime family has just been published. And I'm delighted to say Amy Cronin joins me to chat about her her latest book called In the Shadows. Uh, Good morning to you, Amy. Good morning, Patricia. And firstly, congratulations uh, to you. Uh, What did it feel like when you finally got to the end of this story? Well, it felt great, to be honest. And I finished writing that maybe two years ago. So it, it took a while to come out. Um, but it felt good to bring all the threads of the story together into the final book and answer all the questions as much as for myself as for the readers, because it was kind of um, an organic process. There were some aspects of In the Shadows that just came to me as I was writing it. Well, wow. So it was it was wonderful to finish that out. And, and when it is all done and dusted, you know, the fact there was three books in uh, that yeah. you wrote and it's finally gone off to the publishers. In mm. some ways, you end up missing the characters because they've been living in your mind for such a long period of time. That's absolutely the case. And I did want to continue writing and I found it really difficult to break away from Anna Clark. Um, and I did want her story to be somewhat open that I could pick her up again if I wanted to. But I, um, 
once I finished the third book, I knew I wanted to go in a different direction, but I definitely struggled to let the characters go <laughs> and create new characters. Now, I, I'm, I have read all three, but what, what I think is very clever about your books in book two and in book, thr- book, book three, you cleverly fill people in in case they haven't read one of the other books and and mm-hmm. that was deliberate. I mean, somebody could pick up this book in the shadows and not have read the first two books. And it's still yeah. it's still a great read. Thank you. And that's what you hope a reader will be able to do. Um, you're kind of bearing in mind that there's at least a year between each books um, when they're um, delivered to readers. So while you don't want to repeat yourself, you do need to draw the reader back into the story and remind them of what happened before. Yeah, because I, I certainly was like that when when I started reading the book. I mean, I'd remembered all the main characters and then you write about something and go, God, I forgot that that happened. And so, yeah, so yeah. I, I, thought, I thought that was very clever the way the way you've uh, included that. But when you started with the first one, um, mm-hmm. Blinding Lies was the first one, wasn't it? Yes. D- did you always know that it was going to be a trilogy and did you always know how it was going to end? No. Um, So when I was writing Blinding Lies, it was really writing it for myself. I didn't expect that it would be published. And I was writing during the pandemic in the first lockdown. And then it came out in the second lockdown. And I hate to remind people of that word, but um, I was really just writing for me. But as I approached the end of the book, it was really obvious there was far too much plot for one book. But I sent it off to Poolbeg and um, Paula Campbell is the um, the lady I work with there. And she said, she said, look, this looks like a trilogy. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. There's enough story here for three books. And I think that the third book is when Tom's character really comes alive. Mm-hmm. because He is one of the main characters. I know he's the bad guy, but he's one. He's my favorite character, actually. And his story, I felt, needed to be told as well in a little bit more detail. So um, initially, no, I didn't think it was going to be a trilogy. But then when you're writing in the beginning, you don't even think it will be published. So you're just writing for yourself in the initial stages. Yeah. And remind us how you came to writing. Well, I've done it my whole life. Um, I always tinkered with stories and um, I kept a diary. I did all the usual things. And then life just gets very busy and I stopped writing, but um, I had my kids. I took a career break from work and I wanted to get back to the workforce, but doing something that was just for mornings while the kids were in school. So I was looking for my CV and it was on an old laptop. And on that laptop, I found a couple of chapters that featured Anna Clark. And I decided, oh, yeah, I really liked this. And I carried on with that. And that became Blinding Lies. And then we were in you know, the depths of coronavirus and I thought, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to send this off and see what happens. And I was really enjoying Andrea Mara's books at the time. And she started with Poolbeg. So I sent it to Poolbeg and they offered me a three book deal. And that was completely shocking to yeah. me. But all of a sudden then I was writing full time. So it was quite a, a lot of luck involved and, and timing is very important for writers as well. But it just all came to fruition. So I was thrilled. And they're excellent. They, they really are brilliant. And I love the fact that they're crime novels that are set in Cork, because as you're reading it, uh, you know, particularly when, uh, when, say, Anna was going out for a jog, uh, in my mind's eye, I was seeing her out on, on that jog, yeah. jog. And that's really important, isn't it, to, to write about areas that you know and in many ways people that you might know. 
That's true, because it helps to anchor the reader into the story, especially if you're familiar with the area. Or even if the character feels like an everyday person, that you might know someone like that. So that's true, yeah. Uh, how do you research a crime thriller? I mean, obviously, you're not involved in a criminal family yourself, particularly <laughs> the police work side of it. Have, have you an inside, have you inside knowledge in Garda Siakona? Um, not really. I do have a friend that I bug with questions <laughs> in exchange for coffee every now and again. But I took a little cheat with this story because Anna's not a detective. Yeah. So she's a cler- she's a clerical officer in a Garda station. So that kind of allows for a little bit of leeway. But I do find that I, I read this genre all the time. So you do soak up information and I watch this genre on television. I listen to it on podcasts and you're just constantly soaking in detail and mm. procedure. And the the Internet is a great source of information. The Garda Síochána website has a lot of information there. And then I have sent emails to professionals as well to ask for a specific approach to something. And they've always been lovely and come straight back with information. So there is um, there is research required. And I don't think you can get away with writing any genre without some bit of research. But um, I haven't gone too heavy handed on it. And I, I got away with that because Anna, as I said, isn't a detective. Yeah, yeah, you, you couldn't have somebody picking you up saying a detective would never would never have done that. Do you feel crime novels will always be your genre? Yes, I do, because, well, I think in all stories there has to be some element of darkness. Um, for example, even if I was reading a story about friendship, I would expect to see some form of betrayal in the story in order to drive the plot and you want to see a resolution and a return to the light but I think there has to be darkness as well for me in order to grip me with the plot Mm. Um, and even when you're reading a romantic novel it usually involves someone betraying the other or someone's heart getting broken and then rising out of a challenge so I think in all these stories there's there's an element of darkness I do particularly like crime novels because I think we're just flooded with crime on the news and we have no control over that. So for me to write these books, I can control the outcome. And if the reader feels that these books are too dark, they can abandon the book. They can step away from that. Um, so there's there's a lot of draw for mysteries for me. Yeah, well done. Well done. And that, it was a three book deal with Poolbeg yes. Trilogy. That's the, that's the third. I know you're writing a fourth has Poolbeg picked up, picked it up yet? Um, I I'm moving publisher to HarperCollins. Okay. And the fourth the fourth book is scheduled for release in early 2025, and it's called um, The Dark Hours. And this features a retired female detective who returns to Cork. Okay. Um. So, and I'm currently writing the second book um, in my HarperCollins deal. Um, So that that was a two book deal. So I'm writing book five at the moment. You're unreal. unreal. Are you very disciplined with your writing, uh, Amy? I mean, is it set times every day? Yes, um, I try to be because I have two young kids and their schedule is my schedule, really. And and that's that's my privilege. But I do have this sort of glorious pressure on my shoulders knowing that school is for x amount of time and that's when I will write when it comes to deadlines then I will write seven days a week I'll get up early I'll work late but I work around the family so um it takes a lot of discipline I read a quote that 
geniuses wait for the muse and the rest of us just get to work. <laughs> and I think it's Harlan Coben that said that. And I just yeah. have to get to work. I have to sit down every day and write something. Even if I delete it the following day, the story is progressing in my head. So that's the only way I can do it. Come here, do you still get a buzz out of seeing your books up on the shelves in the bookshops? Honestly, it's really difficult to describe the intensity of the buzz. Um, it's just an amazing thing. Um, it's, it's never going to be something I take for granted. You'd never get tired of seeing it. Yeah. Well, listen, it's, it's, it's another fantastic book. Uh, in, in, your, in your imagination, do you think Anna and Miles have got married and sailed off into the sunset together? Yes, yeah, well I done. don't think she would let him go. <laughs> I he's, don't think so perfect. either. Yeah. <laughs> he's too good a guy. OK, and we're giving nothing away with that. Listen, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's in, as they say, all good bookshops at the moment in the shadows. And particularly if you've read Amy's previous two books, uh, Blinding Lies and uh, Twisted Truth, you'll know how good her writing is and you will, you will be delighted to be getting book three into your hands so that you can finish off and find out exactly what happens to all of the characters. Fantastic read. Already looking forward to twenty. 25 to your next book, Amy. And uh, continue. Good luck with the writing and thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is Amy Cronin, author uh, of the book In the Shadows, and it is published, as she says, by a pool bag. You can always email us, Cork Today, at c103.ie. Marie was on to us earlier, and sorry, I'm only getting to this now. Uh, Marie wants to know any of the other listeners out there experiencing delays in receiving an AIB checkbook? She's been ringing trying to order a checkbook since the 20th of December and still hasn't received one. She was at, she asked for a temporary checkbook and never got one and is wondering anybody else having problems getting a checkbook from AIB Bank. Now, none of the other banks, just AIB, if anyone can tell us, please, is that an ongoing issue? And then somebody was on to us just to let other listeners know that the council are currently sending out letters uh, about bins, asking householders for the details of their bin supplier and how they get rid of their rubbish. In the letter it states there will be a 75 euro fi- 75 euro fine if you don't respond to the letter or if you end up going to court it could be 1,200 euro. Now we are aware that the environmental officers with Cork County Council will be going door to door and we contacted the environmental office of Cork County Council this morning and they say they're doing 10% of the uh, county because they're trying to find out the people that are involved in flight tipping. People that are involved in flight tipping and dumping their household rubbish are people that don't have a bin collection at their door. Now, there are lots of people who don't have curbside collection and they dispose of their rubbish responsibly by bringing it to uh, collection sources that take and they get their they get their rubbish uh, they pay for their rubbish to be taken away or they bring it to a civic community site but of course as we've been telling listeners right across last year you need to keep the receipts to prove how you how you depo- de- de- how you got rid of your rubbish so the councillor trying to find out the householders that are do not have any legitimate way of proving that they are disposing of their resp- their rubbish responsibly in the hope that maybe they will be able to track down some of the people that are just taking their household rubbish and dumping it anywhere. Unfortunately, we've got fly tipping that goes on all over the county and it has to stop. So please be aware of that. We are trying to get on, see if we can get somebody on from the council just outlining what is in these letters and to explain further what they are actually doing. And then Jer by email says, this is an interesting one. I received a letter today from Revenue stating that an agent acting on my behalf now has access to all my revenue records, submitting claims and tax returns on my behalf and will receive 
correspondence in relation to all claims submitted. This is completely untrue. I do not have any agent working on my behalf and I'm now worried that somebody has access to my revenue records. I immediately rang revenue on receipt of the letter this morning but I keep getting a machine saying they're not taking calls and that all revenue related issues should be done with revenue uh, with revenue online, which is no good to, ne- good to me. I need to speak to a human being in order to uh, report it. Now, I didn't realise this, but I, I take it that's the only way you can get through to revenue. They don't physically have anybody answering calls. So we have got back on to George to say, because, you know, John Paul and I were discussing it in the office and John Paul was saying, could that be a scam? You know, and there's so many of these scam uh, emails. Don't know about a letter. Haven't heard of a, le- a letter in the post now years ago before. Uh, they took before text messages and phone calls uh, took over. There was a lot of scams during the rounds and they were arriving in the post. But I, I don't know if I've come across one where a letter was sent out from uh, Revenue. So we're suggesting that Jar is just going to have to contact them by la- online, even if he just contacts them by on- online to request that somebody uh, calls him. Because I, we can't say for sure if it is a scam or not, but it definitely needs to be investigated. But just has anybody else ever received a letter from Revenue stating somebody's acting on your behalf and you have no knowledge of anybody acting on your behalf. Now some of your calls and comments coming in on issues that we've dealt with today. We were talking about bullying a little bit earlier on. This one was on to say granddaughter was very badly bullied in school by just one other girl in her class. It was reported to the principal and to the vice uh, principal. This listener says the only cure for bullies is to stand up to them. She eventually did stand up to this girl and lo and behold the bullying uh, stopped. But she said what really annoyed this listener was the bully was was ended up voted student of the year by the teachers which shows that some teachers are obviously turning a blind eye to bullying. Delighted to report her granddaughter is now in third level education in UCC and is doing very well but the advice from this granny is stand up to bullies, it's the only way to do it. And somebody else listening to our piece on bullying suggests to anyone who is being bullied, take up martial arts. This listener said that's what I did, bullies kept well away and actually that's interesting because Pat Ford, you know, who who set up this um, stop the bullies dot i stop the stop the bullying dot ie, he's actually a martial arts expert. Now I didn't get into it with him today, but I was reading some pieces about him uh, yesterday, and he is he's a black belt in a variety of different uh, martial arts. I don't know if that's got anything to do with uh, bullying uh, or not. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Now we have had a huge reaction, and my apologies that I'm only getting to it now, but we had some of the other issues to cover today. Uh, Earlier on in the programme I mentioned I went down through the long, long list of the 38 ministers, Minister of States and various other public representatives who will be representing Ireland and going overseas for the St. Patrick's Day uh, celebrations. People are travelling over a period of time far, far flung countries all over uh, the world and they will be out there flying the green flag and representing Ireland. Well, so many listeners are annoyed. Particularly, I have to say, so many are annoyed to hear so many green TDs uh, travelling, in particular the Environment Minister and leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan. Let me give you a sample of some of the texts and calls that we've had into the programme so far this morning. Someone says, Eamon Ryan is going to Brazil. Is he going to cross the ocean on a sailboat rather than burn carbon in his plane or is he all talk? Someone else says, I see Eamon Ryan is off to Brazil. 
still, I'm, I'm assuming he'll be going by bike. <laughs> He's going to be leaving now. Uh, someone else by text. The government and their waste of time and money going around the world for St. Patrick's Day when there is so much work to be done here in this country. We have a homelessness problem. We have a housing crisis. Sorting out the country with the number of refugees and asylum seekers that are arriving here. Who's staying in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day? Everybody is trying to watch their money and yet we have the government flying all over the world not happy to hear about this list. Tom says, uh, Hi Patricia, you can object all you want about the list of the TDs going away for St. Patrick's Day but we and, but yet we have no money for other things but yet it happens every single year. Then Margaret has the other side of it. She says, as a person who's lived abroad for many, many years, these trips, believe me, are beneficial from a tourism point of view and it promotes our country in a wonderful way, very much in favour of all of the government and the the uh, junior ministers and senior ministers going uh, abroad. And Pat in Limerick says, hi Patricia, it's a disgrace. To Pat, it's all just a junket that these people are going on. If they could learn something while they're out there and then bring home some good ideas, I feel that would be great. For example, those that are travelling to Spain or Portugal or any other of the very hot countries, Go to those countries and see how they manage water. water. Do they have large reservoirs, for example, to collect water? Could we learn from those uh, countries? Could we learn how they keep their streets clean? How do they, how does their bin collections work, uh, etc.? Also, in many of those uh, countries, everything is included in their property tax. Could the Irish ministers learn from that? What about cheaper car uh, insurance? And that's just a few things that spring to mind. I myself have noticed that they really, we really could learn a lot from other countries, but it doesn't seem to happen. Then, on the other hand, they're dictating to us, particularly members of the Green Party, do as we say not do as we do. Hopefully they will see what's happening with all of the protests in other countries, particularly about the green global policies and come home and start listening to us, the Irish people, because I can I can assure you that this will be the last free junket that any of the Green Party TDs will be on because they won't be seen after the next election, according to Pat in uh, Limerick, which he feels will be sooner than they actually think. So he's not he's not a fan of the Green Party. And Kathleen and Bartlemy says, while people feel that it is a waste of taxpayers' money sending TDs to other countries for St. Patrick's Day, Kathleen says, the reality is the business this brings to an area or an investment that it can bring back to Ireland is massive. Also, the Irish who are living in cities abroad, they like to see their Irish government ministers visiting their cities with such large Irish communities uh, abroad. We really should not be dissing this totally. Uh, Kathleen says she lived in England for a while and she always felt so proud on St. Patrick's Day that a small country could create a worldwide holiday. Plus, she said she used to love hearing Irish ministers if they were visiting nearby cities and would probably make a point of trying to go and see them. So expats very much recognise the importance of these uh, trips. Patricia, isn't Eamon Ryan amazing that he's going to be able to cycle to Brazil for St. Patrick's Day uh, while wanting the rest of us to have a maximum of two cars in every village and then we'll pool the cars and you book it when you need it. It beggars belief. Hi Patricia, why is the Minister for the Environment travelling so far away on St. Patrick's Day? What about all the emissions that were blue in the face to, blue in the face from listening to? I thought he was a Green Party minister. What's green about travelling so far away? That is from a Killarney minister. And I saw Hugh O'Connell 
in the Irish Independent today put a piece together and he really worked on this where he worked out what would be the carbon emissions just from the Green Ministers, not from everybody travelling, just from the Green uh, Ministers. And he's worked out it'll be almost 11 tonnes of carbon emissions for the Green Party reps who are travelling abroad. And he says that that's the equivalent of a year's worth of emissions by two average family cars. Uh, He's pointing out that Eamon Ryan, who we mentioned, uh, the Environment Minister, is leading the Green Exodus. He's travelling to Brazil and he's there from the 13th to the 17th of March. But he'll also visit the cities of Brasilia and Sao Paulo. His journey alone will create 2.37 tonnes of emission. His spokesperson said last night that every individual minister tries to line up functions and events relating to the responsibility. In Eamon Ryan's case, the Brazilian rainforest is an area of interest to him in his portfolio. So one of the reasons I, I assume he asked to go to to Brazil. Then there's the media minister, minister, Catherine Martin. She's also at the Green Party. She's actually their deputy leader. She's got another long haul flight. She's going to the States. She'll be in Nashville, Tennessee and Austin, Texas. She's there between the 8th and the 14th. Her journey will create 1.90 tonnes of carbon emission. Another Green Party member undertaking a long haul flight is the children's minister, Roderick O'Gorman, because he's going to Tokyo and Osaka in Japan. That his actually is the highest admitting individual journey. His comes in at two point six nine tons of carbon. The junior Green Minister Oshin Smith is also going to the Far East. He's going to Seoul in South Korea. His journey is two point four one tons of carbon. And then the land use minister Pippa Hackett, she's travelling to Finland, Estonia and Latvia, and that's a journey likely to result in a carbon footprint print of almost one tonne. Fellow Green Junior Ministers Joe O'Brien and Malcolm Noonan now they are remaining in uh, Europe. We don't know yet but it is possible that they could travel by rail and boat and maybe they will opt to do it. And the emissions calculations are based on the online flight carbon footprint calculator and it's done using very conservative estimates according to Hugh O'Connell including that all ministers will travel economy class. Now if they decide to upgrade to business or first class were into a different uh, scenario uh, but a spokesperson said that flights would be booked in line with government policy so, <laughs> so I don't know what the government policy is going to be but I'm telling you if any of them go business class there will be absolute war but as I say the number of people who are pointing out about the Green why are the Green Party ministers going uh, so far people are absolutely astounded by it 0818 103 103 John Paul and Stephen are taking your cause with a reminder to you that we are looking for gardening questions please because it is Wednesday and Peter Dowdell will be joining us so if you have a question for Peter you can get those in you can also text him WhatsApp 0862 103 103 or if you'd like to email your question you can cork today at c103.ie The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council making Cork County the place to live work, visit and invest in see corkcoco.ie Rathmore Pantomime Puss in Boots it's continuing in Rathmore Community Centre it's on tonight until next Saturday half seven each night and they've got a matinee down for next Sunday at three Booking office is open daily two to six which is next door to Christie's uh, Takeaway.
Please note that Network Ireland West Cork event with Virginia Foley will now take place at Atkins Hall on Chapel Street and that is happening tonight at 7pm. Free classes in iPad and smartphone use will run in Lenamore Community Centre tomorrow Thursday from 10am to 1pm and it's the kick-off tomorrow. All are welcome. And then on Thursday afternoons, there's a free art and craft class. There's again in Lenamore Community Centre between 2 and 4. If you'd like further details on any of these free classes, you can call 086 8239147 and the new market Canturk Alzheimer Cafe that will be held tomorrow between 11am and 1 it's in the cultural lawn in Newmarket with the guest speaker Angela from Alone who will speak on supports for older people living at home and a lip sync fundraiser. It's in aid of Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association and the Clonakilty Youth Centre will be held on Friday night of this week. The venue, the Fernhill House Hotel in Clam. Tickets are €20 and they're available from Anthony on 087 6205146. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. And I think it was Marie he was on to us earlier who's having problems with AIB Bank. She's trying to get a checkbook. She ordered it uh, back in before Christmas, Christmas week. It was the 20th uh, of December and she's still having problems and she's wondering is anybody else having problems? What are the delays with AIB and their checkbook? Well, somebody else was on to say, yeah, they're agreeing with uh, Marie. They've been on to AIB and there seems to be some kind of a backlog with uh, checkbooks and this system was told it's about a month delay. So hopefully Marie should be getting her soon because d- definitely she's gone over the month at at this stage but this listener in North Cork got caught out last week because doesn't doesn't have a cheque had to drive to Cantork don't know where the listener was calling from it doesn't say here on the screen but ended up having to drive to the nearest bank or an ATM machine to get cash uh, out and the listener is saying because I was thinking do many people still deal with cheques but this listener is pointing out that you can't operate in the agricultural sector in this country with only a card and cash obviously brings its own issues with keeping track of everything from revenue and it isn't safe either to have large amounts of uh, cash stored at home waiting to pay uh, somebody. So there does seem to be an issue uh, I don't know, and maybe we'll get John Paul uh, to maybe get on to AIB just to find out why there is a backlog, but according to this listener it's at least a month long. I don't know what the reason for it is. We'll see if we can find out from AI- AIB what is uh, going uh, on. Eddie in Ovens listening to all the ministers going away. He's hoping that some of the ministers are booked on a one-way ticket. I was waiting for somebody to come in with that one. Someone else says, Patricia, the next the next the new motto for the next election for the Green Party should be don't do as I say do not do as I say not do as I do and I'm bullying this is sad my adult son is being bullied by his supervisor at work now the problem is he absolutely loves his job but the employer thinks the bully is the bee's knees in the cat's pyjamas the employer thinks that the boss thinks that the bully is lovely and of course he always is lovely whenever the boss is around the bullying only happens when the boss is out of sight the sister said it really annoys me as my son is such a 
good worker. That's dreadful. Is that really is uh, dreadful? If he could, and, and I don't know if it's if it's a very small business and there isn't any other workers, could he get some evidence uh, of it? Maybe could he record some of the commentary that's going on? I'm assuming it's verbal uh, abuse, and maybe somehow get some evidence against the other employer. But that's yeah, and especially when he's enjoying the job, that really is heartbreaking. And as she talking about heartbreaking, can we all keep in our prayers? That you remember the little girl who was seriously injured during the knife attack outside her school. Do you remember it happened in November? And of course, it went on then to lead to the Dublin uh, riots. I heard last night that she's been readmitted to intensive uh, care. Now she had been moved out of intensive care. She was still a patient at Temple Street Hospital in Dublin, but just before Christmas, her parents had announced online that the little girl had moved out of ICU and she was out on a ward. So everyone was saying, "This is great." She's on the road to recovery and of course out on a ward getting closer to the door of the hospital and closer to be able to to get home Uh, but there was an update by her parents on the GoFundMe page that was set up to raise funds for her care and uh, welfare after that attack happened and it said yesterday we've had a bit of a setback and are currently in the ICU once more. Uh, the mum or dad, I don't know who was writing on the GoFundMe page, said bumps in the road, particularly this long one, are to be expected. Nevertheless, we're still positive and we're hoping to get back onto the ward. Fingers crossed. So please keep that little girl in your thoughts and prayers. The other two children, of course, uh, were also treated in hospital, but they were discharged shortly after the attack and before Christmas as well. The carer, who was also seriously uh, injured, uh, she's been discharged from a hospital as well and of course we know uh, last month a 50 year old man uh, Riyad Bushaka of No Fixed Abode he was charged and he will stand trial before judge and jury but we don't have a date on that trial uh, yet but just to keep that little five year old girl in mind really really traumatic time for the family to hear of her back in ICU and then on to a lighter much more positive uh, note I was keeping a very keen eye on the internet yesterday afternoon because I knew yesterday Yesterday afternoon, the the Eurovision Song Contest, they were doing the draw to decide which country would be performing in the first semi-final, which would be in the second semi-final. And we wanted to see where Bambi Thug was going to be placed. Well, I can tell you now that Bambi Thug will be performing Ireland's Eurovision Song in the first half of the first semi-final in May following that draw yesterday. Now, the other countries that Bambi Thug will be up against on the night in the first half will be Ukraine, Cyprus, Poland, Serbia, Lithuania and Croatia. And the second half of the first semi-final, so we're somewhere in the middle, that is Slovenia, Iceland, Finland, Portugal, Luxembourg, Australia, Azerbaijan and Moldova. And of course, there's 20 countries who are vying for to get out of the semi-finals to get into the final along with the the big five uh, so there will be will be 25 countries on the night so Tuesday the 7th of May that's when the first semi-final is on and that's when we will get to see uh, Bambi Thug's uh, performance and by and we are by the way in case you think uh, we we're not ignoring Bambi Thug we are reaching out we're trying to we're trying to get them onto uh, the program i appreciate how busy they were yesterday uh, because they were doing a lot of interviews yesterday where we are reaching out uh, because love love to talk to Bambi Thug particularly uh, before they head to uh, the semi-final in May and you know i think Bambi 
Bambi Thug themselves will admit uh, the song isn't everybody's cup of tea but I'll say to anyone when the first time I listened to it didn't really get it but the more and more I've listened to it that hook part in the middle is just fabulous I absolutely uh, love it and I think Bambi Thug they have a great voice they they and I think the performance that they're going to put on on the night is going to be incredible. I mean, there was a great performance last Friday night, but they're going to even expand further on that performance uh, in the semi-final on Tuesday, the 7th of May. So hopefully we'll get to speak with Bambi Thug before the, before the end of uh, this week. 0818 103 103. John Paul and Stephen taking your calls. We are looking for your gardening questions, please, for uh, Peter Dowdle. You can text or WhatsApp to 08 862-103-103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Peter of the Irish Gardener.com uh, joining me. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well, uh, thank you. OK, let's get straight into questions that are coming in to us uh, this morning. Now, I know John Paul sent you on a picture. Did you get that of the lemon tree? I did, it was a bit of fact, okay. yeah, and that's all, right. all I did. Okay, the, the, it's a picture with a question. This is a picture of our lemon tree, which has been doing great in a polytunnel. However, since the freezing weather recently, the newer growth seems to have withered. Is there anything we can do to help it recover? It has withered, and it, 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 uh, it most likely, as they correctly say, from the, from the very cold temperatures. But it also, it's a symptom as well of, of getting too dry with the cold, so... Uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's not irreparable damage or anything like that. I would probably actually prune off the withered growth and just give it a dry. I can't see, obviously, from the photograph how damp the soil is around it or, or if it's bone dry. And normally with a citrus, obviously, you would err on keeping it very dry. But um, it, you can't be too dry either. So I would give it a small drop of water if, if, it's not, if it's very dry at the moment. Give it a small drop of water. Cross your fingers for no more low temperatures. And it's a good it's a good example actually of even in a polytunnel when we get temperatures that low, certain plants like your citrus would need to be protected with a bit of horticultural fleece or something over them. Um, hopefully, hopefully we won't get those low temperatures again. But I hate to, to keep reminding. I seem to do this every year. February is normally our coldest month. And mm. I don't know if the records back me up, but I know we all often get a cold spell in February. So we're certainly not out of the woods yet. So I would have a roll of horticultural fleece to hand, prune off the the withered now, give it a drop of water and, and then as I say, if the temperatures dip again put the fleece around it. Well I know we, we have a minus two um, tonight but I mean when we got the really cold spell last week, I mean we were getting reports in here of some areas where it went down to minus eight, minus nine. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's cold for this part of the world and a citrus even, you see in an un- uh, a polytunnel or an unheated glass house will, will keep the worst of the frost off, off a plant but when it gets to that less than minus five, minus six, you still need to offer more protection. Are they edible lemons? They will be, yeah. yeah. They will be when they ripen. Now, the only thing, and I don't want to, don't want to dis, dis, disillusion the, the, the caller, that um, also what very cold temperatures can do is lead to premature fruit drops. So before they ripen, they may lose the fruit. So look, we'll hope for the best. Give it a drop of water. Uh, and hope for the best. That's, that's so much of gardening, Chris, is trial and error. That's it, that's it. And then Tim was on to us. His eucalyptus tree uh, became dislodged uh, during the recent stormy weather. It's about eight foot tall and it's leaning nearly 45 degrees. He said the roots are exposed. Could he straighten it up and stake it and will it survive? 
Yes, yes, and yes. You can oh. stake it up. It will survive. They're, they're quite resilient, um, and it will grow up. However, it will never be secure in the soil. It will always be at risk. So my advice, my strong advice is, if it's near a house or a structure or anything, take it out, because it will come down at some point. Easier to move it now at 8 foot than it is when it's 58 foot. So I would certainly take it out if it's anywhere near a house or any kind of a structure. If, it's, if you have plenty of space and if it falls, it's not going to do any harm, then grand, try restaking it um, uh, and stake it tight uh, and, and you know, really try and firm those roots back into the soil, uh, but only, only if it's, if it's not going to be a risk. And, and I mean, at eight foot, it's not a risk. What I mean about being near to a house, if it's within 50, 60 feet of a house for a eucalyptus, that's too close. So it, it, really, you want a huge garden or a farm farmland really to be growing eucalyptus. Did you say it can grow to 58 feet? Oh, and more. They can grow can to 100 feet and more. Wow. Yeah, and, they're, and they're very quick growing, Tricia. I mean, they can grow to 100 feet in, in 10, 15 years, you know. So, um, well, sorry, 60, 70 feet in 10 or 15 years. But the thing is that they're, they're, they, they have adapted over the millennia. They're native to Australia, so they've adapted to regenerate. So they, they, they'll blow down uh, or they'll burn in forest fires, which is what happens obviously over in that part of the world. But then they regenerate, so they expect to be short-lived, if you like, before regenerating. So they're, they're shallow-rooted. They're not a good tree to have anywhere near a house. OK. Uh, Liz dug up her begonia tubers for the winter. Uh, she wants to know, when should I start to plant them out again? I'm delighted to get questions like this because it means we're, we're coming towards the spring and yeah. we're not lifting them now, we're looking the other way. So it's still far too early. I wouldn't be dreaming about planting them even indoors until kind of March, really, March. If you want to plant them straight outside, I'd look at second half of April. But if you want to start them off indoors in pots, uh, you'd be looking at March. March, April is plenty of time. OK, Tess cut back St. Anthony's lilies when they finished flowering. But then she said they started to grow back. And now she said the leaves have what she's described as melted. She said it was probably from the frost. Does she cut back all of the greenery now? Yeah, well, it was definitely, not probably, don't worry, it was definitely from the low temperatures. Um, and that's a good way of describing it. They kind of turned to mush overnight. Yeah, so what's over the ground is, is dead. They, they regenerate, they regrew. Like if, if if you look, remember September, we hit thirty degrees. So when things should have been going to sleep, they were actually starting to grow again. They got quite confused. So that's what happened, and then they got hit by this this frost. Um, what's over the ground is dead. So really, you're just clearing it off for aesthetics. The the the, the, the living part of that plant is under the ground, and the, the low temperatures shouldn't have done any any harm to to the plant itself. It will come again in the spring. Might be a bit later, but but it will come again in the spring. So what's over the ground, you could remove absolutely. Hi, uh, Peter. Simple gardening question for you. Is it too soon to set a few seeds in a greenhouse? I'm not great at this, but I love pottering around. I'm thinking of a few nasturtiums and sweet peas. Absolutely. You're not, you're not too late uh, at all so, or too early at all. So into a seed tray, into a few pots of compost, into the greenhouse. And like I said there, when we were talking about the, the a minute ago, I can't remember, oh, my head is gone blank, but the gardening is trial and error. So just try a few packets of seed in the seed tray uh, sweet peas, the earlier you've sowed them, the better, because it means you'll have stronger plants quicker and earlier in the summer when it comes to planting out. So certainly the ones she's mentioned there, sweet peas and nasturtiums, will absolutely germinate indoors. Now, you keep them indoors till, till we're getting into April, even early May, but it means you'll have lovely strong plants then. And well done to Tim. He's back in a flash to say thanks to Peter for the advice on the eucalyptus tree. Thank you for that, uh, Tim. Hi, Peter. 
I have a bay leaf tree. It's planted in a pot outside my front door. The leaves have white spots on them and what I can only describe, some of the leaves look decayed. Any advice on what I should do to prevent it from getting worse? That's from Patricia. If Patricia could send us a picture, uh, just, sorry, I don't want to give wrong advice. Yeah. So just send us a picture, uh, maybe send us a close-up and, and a picture of the whole plant uh, and I'll try and give good advice. If Patricia gets them into us, we'll, we'll certainly have a look at it for next week. Okay, could you give advice? A listener wants to plant a magnolia tree. She has It's a small to medium-sized uh, garden that receives afternoon and evening sunshine. Is Is it suitable? Perfect aspect, yes. Afternoon and evening sunshine is perfect. It means it's probably facing west or southwest. What what magnolias? Did you say magnolia? She did. Yeah, say, magnolia. Yeah. Yeah. Mag, what magnolias don't like is to be facing due south or east that early morning sun because what will happen is the the flower buds are set on the magnolia uh, in the autumn for opening up in the spring, and what will happen is with the frost and the harshness of the sun in the morning, it'll burn those flowers before they ever open, so they kind of open brown and they look like they're burnt or frost damaged. So what she has is the perfect aspect where it's only getting sun in the evening. However, a small to medium garden makes it important that she chooses the right the right species of magnolia because your kind of classic tulip-shaped magnolia, which is one called Magnolia sulangiana, will get quite big. You know, I wouldn't put it in, a, certainly not in a small garden. I suppose it depends what she means by medium, but maybe look at one called Magnolia stellata, which is the star magnolia, which is another real beauty. Uh, but it'll only grow to six or seven feet and, you know, a, a large shrub stroke small tree. So look into the varieties that you want. Spend a bit of time online or in your local garden centre having a look at the different ultimate height and spread because it doesn't matter what it looks like today or even next year. You're concerned about how it's going to be in, in 10 years' time. So just make sure you get the right species. But in terms of aspect, yeah, perfect. OK, somebody else is, uh, people are discovering damage now from the storm. A red robin that was planted about 10 years ago, it's uprooted in the storm. What are the chances of it regrowing? It depends how badly it's been uprooted, Trish. I mean, if it's like Tim's eucalyptus where kind of half of it's up and half of it's in, then, then it'll probably be OK. Just, just again, stake it. I would cut it back very, very hard to for stability as much as anything else in the first instance. Um uh, and stake it and try and firm those roots back in. D- depending on how, how uh, if, if, if it makes sense, how aggressively it was torn out of the ground or how much damage was done when it was pushed over, that really is going to determine whether it'll be successful or not. But I suspect it should be. Cut it back hard. Make sure you're leaving some greenery below where you cut so you're not taking all the foliage off it. Uh, stake it again and try and firm it in as best you can into the soil and I'd say it'll come good again. Okay and we're back somebody else is in this uh, similar question came up last week somebody with ashes from the fire this sister says I only burn dry timber I don't use any coal and I'm wondering what to do with the ashes I love the idea of putting them on the garden but do I keep them until the summertime and uh, uh, put them to one side and wait or is it okay to put them out now? Not at all put them out straight away it's wood ash it's perfect you put your you're putting potash into the garden, which is great for root development, flower production, fruit production, everything. But either either do what I do sometimes, which is the, the lazy way of doing it, and just scatter it around the rose bushes, um, or, or put it into the compost bin and let it work with all with all the other organic matter. But either one, no, you don't need to keep it. You can put it out straight away. Just just if you're putting it out, don't tip a whole bucket, you know, into one place because it'll just become a sodden mass. You know, spread it, spread it loosely. Okay, and someone else says her neighbour's daffodils are in full bloom. Is that unusual? Has to do with the weather, though, isn't it? 
Well, it is to do with the climate. There are there are some varieties, obviously, which are earlier than others. There would some there are some varieties which would naturally flower from December onwards, but the majority of our daffodil varieties would would be you know March. It'd be in full flower for Daffodil Day, kind of third week in March. So yeah, we're we're two months too early, but it is it, the climate. It's definitely whether whether it, it's a one-off or not. I don't think some plants are, are certainly flowering earlier every year at the moment. Okay, and Dan, it's funny, you, you've sparked a debate now about eucalyptus. Dan says, my neighbour has a eucalyptus tree which is taller than the top of their two-storey house in their backyard. It's about four metres from the house and it's leaning over the garden wall into my backyard. It's proving a difficult job to get them to cut it, says uh, Dan. Yeah, when the problem is if there's a storm, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to get involved. No, in no, not, not in the neighbours. Keep talking to him, Dan. Keep talking to him. Okay, okay. Yeah. And someone else says, could you ask Peter, has he cut his grass yet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I haven't, but it, the only reason I haven't is because it's just been too wet. I mean, I would be out there cutting it. So the only time you don't cut your grass is when it's physically frozen or, or when it's waterlogged. And I think like every lawn in the country at the moment, it's, it's still just too wet to get out and do it. But if I did get the opportunity, I certainly would. OK, you're, you're waiting. All right, yeah. listen, we leave it there. We'll chat you again next week. Thank you for that. Thanks, Trish. I look forward to it. Have a great week. That is uh, Peter Dowdle at the theirishgardener.com. Let's give credit to the two Cork towns that are among the safest to live in this country. Uh, Castlebar County Mayo is the best for work-life balance. This is a new survey that's out. The research was based, uh, was carried out by Switcher.ie and it's based on multiple factors, things like access to local amenities, the number of shops, the type of shops, the schools, the GP services, the cafes, broadband speed and mobile uh, coverage. They also looked at things like house prices, what kind of transport infrastructure was there, if they had good green spaces. But most importantly, they looked at crime rate. They took that into account. And that's where Cove and Carrigaline triumphed in Cork. They're amongst the safest towns in Ireland to live and work, coming second and third. Newbridge and Kildare had the lowest rate of recorded uh, crime. Uh, Ballina is the best area to live for families. That's due to high price, house prices and crime rates. They also have a large number of GP surgeries and primary schools. But Cove ranked 14th for work-life balance and that was followed by Mallow, Carrigaline and Clonmel. And Cork City, they came 46th for work-life balance. Limerick, by the way, came up bottom of the pile. And Galway was the best place for hybrid uh, working. And of course, all of this research comes out as the new legislation giving employees the right to request remote working and carers leave and more flexibility arrangements. That's coming in at the end of this year. So well done to Cove and to Carrigaline. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul and Stephen for taking your cause. Nick Richards with you for the afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.